I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark 14. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Uh, last week we, we went through the entire chapter, Mark 13, and we talked about what Jesus had to say about the destruction of the temple. Um, today in Mark 14 we start a new section, the final section of Mark's gospel, where uh, he works through the events preceding and including the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's Mark 14, 15, and 16. And uh, so in these, these three chapters, you have these events preceding and including Christ's death. Now in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 52, he describes three main events that prepare for or, or are preceding the arrest of Jesus. The three events are the anointing of Christ's feet, the Last Supper, and Gethsemane. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we'll have the opportunity to work through these three events that precede Jesus' arrest. Instead of just describing these events, uh, however, in their stark detail, in simple narrative, Mark actually uses the events. He uses the events of these days to drive home important themes for his readers. And so as we go through these events, I think each one of them has a major theme that Mark is trying to establish for his readers. So this morning we're going to look at the first event together and discover Mark's main emphasis uh, in an inductive way. I'm not going to tell you at the beginning, but as we go through, uh, I hope to see this. In these 11 verses, uh, Mark follows his typical style. He has, from time to time in the gospel, woven stories together. And typical way he does this, uh, I've, I've called it, it's a Markin sandwich, where he's got two themes that he wants to establish. He takes one of those themes and he introduces a narrative with it, gets about halfway through the theme and he stops. And then he takes a second theme and he puts it in, you know, the meat in the sandwich. And then after that, he returns to his first theme. Okay, so that's what's going to happen in this text today. And so I want to look at the first part of Mark's account of Christ's anointing. We start with the first half of the first topic. You ready? Verse 1. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So to highlight these two themes in a sandwich, you know, the top and the bottom and the middle... I want to have three points with you this morning. The first one, in verses 1 and 2, we see the scribes and the high priest's desire. Their sinister desire. Okay, so that's what verses 1 and 2 are going to be about. The, the, the desire of the high priest and the scribes. We find out at the beginning of this text that this is an important time for the Israelite people. It's a time of the Passover. The Passover was an annual celebration of God's former deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. You remember how he delivered them, and they got all of their stuff in a hurry, and they went out after the ten plagues, the tenth plague being the, the, the lamb that was slaughtered, and the blood post and so on in Egypt. And so as celebration of that every year, the Jewish people would have the Passover. The Passover is one of three annual events, um, or uh, things like this, uh, for the Jewish people. In order to celebrate the Passover, the book of Deuteronomy says that people had to be within the walls of the city of Jerusalem itself. 
And so, because this is Passover and because people had to be inside of Jerusalem, what the Passover meant was that the population of the, of the city of Jerusalem would swell. It would grow. And depending on who you read, it would swell anywhere from four or five times larger than normal to ten times its normal population. Okay, and so because of this, what would also occur at Passover is the authorities would prepare for the heightened risks of riots among the people. So you can imagine having all of these people brought into your city. There's heightened risks, and so authorities would prepare for this. So in in verses 1 and 2, what we learn is that although the scribes and the high priests really want to arrest Jesus and kill him, that's their twofold desire, we want to arrest him and kill him, they do not because the text says that they fear an uproar. You see that in verse 2? That word uproar there. If you're the possibility of an uproar among the people. One commentator, William Lane, described the word uproar well. He said, the reference in verse 2 then is to the noise and confusion of an excited crowd when mob fever intensified by the hope of redemption associated with the Passover could seize the people so that the situation became uncontrollable. Okay, so the scribes and the high priests know this is a very volatile time and we don't want to stir up the people in any way. So although we really want to kill Jesus, we're going to wait. So that's the first part of this text. The scribes and the high priests' sinister desire to kill Jesus. Now, we're going to return to the scribes later at the end of the story. Don't read ahead. Okay, we'll discover this along the way. But let's look at the second point. Verses 3 through 9, in the middle, to give the main emphasis of Jesus, highlight the actions of an unnamed woman. So look down in your Bible at verses 3 through 9. It says, And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The second point I call an unnamed woman's priorities. Or a woman's priorities. Here Jesus finds himself in a home in Bethany. It says he's the home in, in the home of Simon, a leper, probably a former leper that had been cleansed or healed. And that's when a woman comes in. This text, an unnamed woman walks into the home and engages in something controversial. Now, she's unnamed in this passage, but if you took the time to look in the parallel passage in John chapter 12, sometime verses 1 through 8, you can see that in that text... She's given a name. It's Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. 
reading about this unnamed woman. For some reason, Mark doesn't give her name. I think maybe he's inviting the reader to identify with this woman and to consider their own devotion to Christ. But this is the same woman who sat at Jesus' feet, Mary, and who bore the brunt of her sister Martha's criticism. Remember this? Martha's up about serving all over, and Mary's just too busy with Jesus. She's at his feet. So in Mark chapter 14, Mary takes, or this unnamed woman here, takes expensive perfume, it's called nard, and she pours it over Christ's head. Actually, the text here says that she had an alabaster flask or vial full of perfume. An alabaster flask would normally be a fragile stone flask for the perfume. These flasks normally had a very small, narrow head or opening where they could strategically kind of pour it out, you know, the perfume upon something or anoint someone or do something like that. But in this case, the woman doesn't bother with pouring it out slowly. She breaks the neck. Imagine this. She breaks the neck of the alabaster flask, and she, she doesn't just daub it on Jesus. She dumps it on him. She puts it all over his head. John 12 says she also puts it on his feet, and she cleans Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, certain texts in the Psalms, especially in the Old Testament, show us that it was customary at banquets to anoint others like this. But what this woman is doing, what I want you to understand is what she is doing is lavish and it's beyond normal courtesy. Okay, and so she is taking all of this perfume and dousing our Lord with it. Now, we might question pouring out all of this precious substance on Jesus, and I think uh, we'll find out that we're not the only ones who are going to question that in a moment. We'll see that. But one of the things I want to point out as I was doing a word study in this text is that this, if you look at the end of verse 3, it says, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. The verb that's used there for poured out is used one other time in this chapter. And you go to verse 24, you will see that. If you're just doing a word study, you're looking for this word poured, you'll see it there. It says, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Well, we might question the fact that she would pour out all of this substance on Jesus. Mark reminds us just a little while later that Jesus will pour out his own precious substance for the sins of the world, his blood. In a sense, I'm saying here, you know, this is not too extravagant to take a little bit of nard and to dump it on Jesus when he's just about ready to give all of his life's blood for sinners. But some of the people here, as she does this, performs this act in this house in Bethany, uh, in this home, they do not appreciate what she's doing. So in, in verses 4 and 5, the way these verses are arranged, it's arranged about what they say to themselves and what they say to her. That's so I take verses 4 and 5. To themselves, they ask why she has wasted the perfume. They thought it was a waste because she could have sold the perfume and given the proceeds to the poor. That seems to be an admirable thing, doesn't it? And I think even in our church in America today, we would see this as being an admirable thing, desiring to take care of the poor. 
They suggest, though, that it could have been sold at a high price, 300 denarii, which would total about 300 days worth of work, the salary from that. So it's similar, perhaps, to something like forty dollars or $50,000 today. You can imagine them thinking, she just poured $50,000 away, just evaporated into the air. And so they're saying this among themselves. But then at the end of verse 5, you see, they not only say this among themselves, what else did they do? They scold her. They reprimand her. They rebuke her very harshly. They felt that what this woman was doing was she was pouring her ointment down the drain. So they let her have it, and they rail on her for her waste. But as you continue reading in the text, someone understands what she's doing. Jesus. So in verse 6 in your Bible, Jesus takes her side. And he demands that they leave her alone. I mean, the language that's used here is very, very strong, actually. It's like he's saying, back off, boys. She's right. Leave her alone. Their scolding of her had made her very uncomfortable. We can see that in verse 6 in the way Jesus responds. And so Jesus stands up for her. And what does he say? He says, she has done a beautiful thing. She's done a, a beautiful thing. And then he, accept, he suggests something amazing in verse 7. I mean, if you actually stay, take the time to stop and think about verse 7 a little bit, so, you know, wh- what is the point that he's making? Look at verse 7 in your Bible. She's done a beautiful thing to me, verse 6. For you always have the poor with you, And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. I think what we find in this text, this is a a narrative, a story about priorities. And so Jesus is helping the disciples and those present in this room to understand true and genuine priorities when it comes to him and when it comes to the poor. So I want to take just a little bit of time to to talk about this with you. Just make a few statements about verse 7 and what I think Jesus is doing here. The first statement I'll make here is I think this story is teaching a very high Christology. A very high Christology. I mean, what type of person would actually make a statement like verse 7? What type of person can say that? I mean, you like always have the poor with you, but you don't don't always have me. I wanted us to imagine this for a moment. So today I thought, you know, what if, we have an annual business meeting coming up. Did I mention that? Wednesday night? Be there. Okay. So what if, at the annual business meeting, you uh, see the budget and you see that I have proposed a significant raise for myself? Okay, now I actually didn't do that. I don't, I don't propose raises for my own salary. I never would do anything, hopefully never do anything like that. But let's just say it happened. And so you see, man, there's, there's a big raise for Pastor Brent. And then I explain that it's not a huge increase to our budget because what I've done is I've taken our monthly support for union mission and I've given it to myself. And then I were to say, you know what? You always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. So you need to care for me. I mean, how would you respond to that, right? 
And what would you think? What type of person makes a claim like this? You say, well, that's not appropriate for you, but in some way it has to be appropriate for Christ, right? I mean, when this comes from the mouth of God, it must be okay. And so I want to suggest to you that it it is appropriate for at least two reasons. First, we must remember the heightened situation that they are in at this moment. Christ is just about ready to die. His presence with them is fleeting. So soon, uh, he will depart. And what he's saying is that his soon departure was more urgent than the ongoing needs of the poor. But then I add to this, that it is appropriate for Christ to say this in light of what he said at other places in the book. And can you think of a time where Jesus talked about the greatest commandments in all of the law. Can you think about that? He says there are two. The second one is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a very important command that must be obeyed, but there's one that's greater. Right? There's one that precedes it. And that is that you are to love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. I mean, these two commands are connected and related, but the second one flows from and follows after the first. So what Jesus, I think, is is making the point that there is a priority on loving God most. Now, if you love God most, you're going to take care of the poor and others like it, but it's appropriate for Jesus to say this. So our passage forces us, I think, to consider at least one significant question, and that is, how much devotion to Christ is too much for his followers? I think that's what this this thing forces us to consider, this story. I mean, Mark's Christology is like really high. And Jesus' demands are high. And so as we think through this, I think we have to consider, you know, is it ever too much to give to Jesus? Can we ever accuse someone of foolishly giving too much to Jesus? I mean, I think that's what we have to think through in this text. And uh, one of the ways I respond to this text, I've been thinking about this as a pastor, you know, from time to time. uh, Now, I, I, I don't hear what people give. I, I never want to know what anyone gives, but from time to time, um, I will hear like in concept of someone who sacrificed greatly or something. And as a mercy shower who has concerns for the church, uh, sometimes I think, man, I just hope that they're going to be okay. Hope that they're going to be okay. But I've, I've committed, because of texts like this, never to suggest to another follower of Christ that his or her sacrificial giving for Jesus is too much. Pretty well determined never to say that. Now what would you do today if you heard of someone who decided, for instance, to give $50,000 from his or her retirement funds to the Lord in one transaction? Maybe they had $100,000 or $200,000 that they'd worked their whole life to, to create or to save up, and then they just give $50,000 away. What would you think? 
You might question his sanity. You might even mention that to them. So you know, you saved your whole life for this. You will be vulnerable. But I think this text challenges our thinking on that. Challenges our thinking. We do live in a world today that allows for minor degrees of religion or Christianity, but who censor or even punish those who have too much of religion or Christianity. So, for instance, I was thinking this week, the world claims that we are bigots and full of hate when we form doctrinal statements on what the Bible says about how to treat the sins of homosexuality and lesbianism. They want to censor us because of our hate and force us to accept all people regardless of their orientation. The Bible, however, doesn't say anything about orientation. The Bible talks about the fact that God makes men and women in his own image with natural desires for the opposite sex. So, we follow the Bible, even if it means others will censor or punish us. And we take comfort in texts like 1 Peter chapter 4, where 1 Peter is explaining to us in texts like that that this sort of suffering for righteous purposes is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Think of 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16. You don't have to turn there. But Peter says this. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay? So that's the world in which we live. Okay? You can be a Christian, you just can't follow Orthodox Christian theology. Okay? This is the world in which we live. However, what's even sadder to me is that the church today also often has a problem with too much Christianity. So we look at a woman like this who breaks a flask of of ointment, $50,000 ointment, and dumps it all on Jesus, and we say, she gave too much. That's just too significant. I mean, how is she going to make it? I think what we need to look at in this text, men and women, is that we must allow what Jesus says and what he declares in his values to be our norm, not what our world says is appropriate. Not even what the church would promote as being reasonable. So in this woman, we have this woman who decides, I'm going to sacrifice greatly for the cause of Christ. Now I want to put flesh on this a little bit more for us for just a moment. I was thinking uh, this past week we had uh, a service for Captain Olson. And uh, it was a great time to, to celebrate his life. I heard many testimonies from many people. I mean, it's amazing tribute to what God had done in his life and how he had used him. My favorite conversation I had, though, with someone, a testimony, was in private. And so I want to share that with you. I was talking with a, a young man who uh, uh, told me about a conversation that he had overheard between Captain Olson and another elderly man in our church. So a young man was just walking by, and he, he overheard these two elderly men strategizing and dreaming and planning about how they were using their money 
for missions endeavors. Mission endeavors. So Captain Olson loved to talk about. Here's, here's a new way that I'm using my funds for God's funds, right, for the glory of God. Right? I think that's an outstanding testimony and tribute. You know, here's a, here's a man who was living on a fixed income who made things even more restrictive so that he could give generously the cause of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the testimony of a preacher I knew, a well-known preacher. He's still alive today. I found out once, not too long ago, that this man, according to all the books that he's written, Christian books that he's written, he has brought in over half a million dollars of income. He thought, well, that's the sort of occupation I need to be in. I'll write Christian books. That's what I'm going to do. The testimony of this man is, and it's been affirmed by those in leadership of his church, that he's, he's gotten over $500,000 for writing Christian books, and he has given every penny back to some mission endeavor. In fact, I know where this man lives. I've driven by his house, and if you drive by his house, it's a row house in the city that he lives. And so what this man does, what this preacher does, is he lives cheaply so that he can give generously the cause of Jesus Christ. And you might think that sort of commitment or life is foolish, but I think it's very much like this unnamed woman. She gives. But then next in verse 8, we see that Jesus says what the woman is doing is she's not performing a banquet ritual here. She's performing a burial ritual. Ritual. It seems here that Jesus has one foot in the grave, and this woman's act is preparing him for the cross. And so then finally in verse 9, you look in your Bible, verse 9, Jesus explains that this woman's act of devotion and love, he says, will be told, told for the ages. And generations of people, when they speak about my gospel, will speak about this woman. This unnamed woman in Mark's gospel. So, so what does God do? He leads three gospel writers to record this story for us and for the generations. And so now, what, 2,000 years later, when we gather at Colonial Baptist Church, her story is told again. This is the woman's priority. She's a positive example. Now, I want to look with you just at the end of this text, though, verses 10 and 11, where we return to a negative example. Look at verse 10. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray her. This is point three, a disciple's plan. A disciple's plan. It appears to me that the first 11 verses are arranged in the way that they are to give the reader examples to follow and examples to avoid. On the negative side of it, it started with the twisted schemes of the chief priests and scribes. They really wanted to get them, but they couldn't because they're afraid of an uproar. To that negative example, Mark adds the treacherous act of Judas Iscariot. Desire to betray Jesus. So Judas here determines to betray Jesus for money. We know 
some of his motives from some of the other Gospels. The Gospel of John confirms it was for greed that he had done this. One, one of the other Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, said that actually Satan had filled his heart. Satan was somehow using him. But in Mark's Gospel here, it appears again that his sole purpose is money. And so from this point on, Jesus will seek a way to deliver Jesus over in a private setting during the Passover. So men and women, what we have in these final verses, in my opinion, is we have a good example and a bad example. We have a woman who gave up money for Jesus. And we have a man who gave up Jesus for money. Jesus for money. And so as we close here today, let me ask you, measure yourself. Examine your own heart. Examine your own life today. Do you have the sort of devotion to Christ where no earthly object or precious heirloom is more important to you than him? Do you find yourself scheming, planning, plotting some of these elderly examples I've given to you, the preacher I've given to you, about how you can be strict with your resources so that you can give to the Lord? You find yourself at Jesus' feet, metaphorically, joyfully willing to use all of your stuff, any of your stuff, it's just stuff, to exalt him. Men and women, my prayer for our church today is that God would ignite in each one of our hearts the same sort of zeal that this unnamed woman had for her Lord and her Savior, Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that that'll be true, not just of the elderly, but that it would be true of them every age. My prayer that we would have young people who'd be so zealous for the Lord that they'd be scheming, planning, plotting about how they can use their resources and their life, for that matter, to serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come through this text, we think through the example of this unnamed woman, and we consider the way the disciples responded to her. They felt that her commitment was too radical. It broke normal customs. Father, we at times as well become uncomfortable with radical commitment and sacrifice for the name of Christ. Lord, we just think it's not normative today. In Christianity, to be so zealous like this woman. So Lord, may the words of Jesus, may his priorities become our own. May you help us to consider how that we can use our stuff for your glory. We don't know whatever became of this woman, Mary. But I'm convinced that you took care of her. We don't know whatever became of the poor widow 
who gave her two mites. Lord, I know you, you took care of her. Lord, as we consider our own life, our own resources, whether that's money, time, talents, life pursued, I pray that we would willingly give you whatever you would want or ask and not be uncomfortable with that type of commitment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.